0: Again, it's been excruciatingly long since I was able to make one of these videos, and I'm glad to finally get to another one. Thanks for joining me once more in my little cubby hole of virtual reality. Just to briefly recap where we're at, we've been looking at the question of God in terms of three layers. First, we dealt with stumbling blocks that, that get in the way of belief in God from the problem of divine absence, which we otherwise identified as sort of that first phenomenological layer. Uh, And then coming up, we're going to deal with uh, stumbling blocks derived from human understanding, that is to say, rational reticence uh, about affirming God's existence from from arguments, from reasoned arguments. And we'll get to those starting in the next video, and that constitutes sort of the third layer of dealing with with the question of God. Right now, we're in that second layer, trying to deal with stumbling blocks that arise, as it were, from, from aesthetic or moral considerations, In the last video, I talked about how one might work through doubts about God arising from suspicion that his way for us is is unattractive, as it were. But in this video, I want to work through how we might deal with doubts about God's goodness or justice as such. So here the complaint wouldn't be so much that God is merely a killjoy, uh, as it were, but rather that he's a killer simpliciter, uh, What he asks of us is not merely disappointing, but he is himself positively a sadist you know, obsessed with his own glory, jealous, wrathful, a bit sensitive if he feels like the that the stumbling of, of mere mortals warrants, you know, roasting on the eternal flame. Uh, so you've got the problem of hell and you've got, you know, the scary stories of the Old Testament where God commands Israel to slaughter the Canaanites. You know, can we really revere and trust a God with these values or where these claims are true about about such a God? Would it not be more dignified, one might boldly insist, to accept one's eternal roast instead of giving homage to to such cosmic sadism as the as the objection often goes. Uh, and we're, perhaps we're all scandalized for it being put so baldly, but we all do get it in a sense when, when it's put that way, most of us can feel a little triggered by these kinds of questions, at least to some extent. And so we, we do need to work through them and work through them very honestly. If God is good, if God is the good, the true and the beautiful, we have nothing to fear by doing direct battle with these, these nascent little, 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 you know, dialogical whispers in our soul, as it were. And of course, the most basic thing to say is that that much of what I've said above you know, much of that kind of parody I just gave does reflect some significant misunderstanding. Uh, Half the battle is always just trying to discern what the justice of, what's the justice of God, you know, considered in itself and distinguishing that from, uh, you know, you know, distinguishing that from some sort of projection uh, of God in the imaginary imaginary deeds that we give to that projection. Basically an idol. Very often the actual justice of God is dismissed in the name of dismissing an idle because there's a misunderstanding about what it is that we're even talking about. For instance, what hell entails, what actually happened in the Canaanite situation, all that sort of thing. Uh, We'll we'll come back to this because this point, you know, about about, uh, missing the, you know, the facts themselves, as it were, getting the information wrong simply, that point does remain crucial throughout. Uh, But we also need to be very clear that even after our understanding has been clarified, it is still entirely possible that something about God's way or some deed of God will rub creatures like ourselves in the wrong way. I'll I'll suggest a few reasons for this in a moment, but we we can at least start with asking this. Should we expect our default settings to be a reliable guide to our making a judgment in this area? And that's what I want to talk about in this video. What is the most reasonable thing to conclude about persons like ourselves when we're confronted with questions about the justice of God that that rub us in the wrong way? Once we've talked about that, we can give some hints about answer what answers to those questions might look like, which I hope to flesh out again in, in later videos in this series. So for this video, part one, we'll talk about our instincts. What, what, she, what, what should we expect out of people just like ourselves? And then in the second part of the video after that, we'll, we'll talk about how people like ourselves with just those instincts. Uh, therefore need to work through these kinds of tensions in light of themselves and who they are, tensions that arise from from some doubt about God's underlying justice. So, So part one, our justice instincts. What should we say about the default settings of persons like us, persons who have just our particular, you know, stereotypical classical moral tensions, hell, the justice of God, you know, that kind of stuff. First, we need to admit on the front side how deeply relative our ethical instincts are it's not that there are no there is no objective moral order obviously but the objective moral order is Obviously, also not to be equated with your moral instincts as such, any honest student of history and really anyone who has spent enough time getting in, getting outside of themselves to watch all the peculiar little cultural things that we do can, can observe that we, like most humans, are all deeply moved by interpretations of the world that we, we don't fully understand, either in their philosophical foundations or in their practical implications. As Americans, for instance, most of us value things like equality and freedom and competence in some sort of visceral way, even a pre-theoretical way. And people can fill out those labels differently. What's patriotism? You know, Is it being progressive? Is it being traditional? Uh, but everybody justifies themselves in terms of those things. And, and we can go further than that. It's also the case that we tend to place a, a, a weight of authority Uh, on the world of inner instinct and sentiment in questions of justice. That's a cultural habit that we have. In in our world, the the moral sentiments of the inner life have a certain kind of authority. Uh, They must be reckoned with, and that shapes the conversation that we have about justice very, very deeply, because that is, in fact, historically idiosyncratic. And And ironically, the 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 Christian tradition at its best has always seen the inner life of man as something to reckon with. That is to say, it's always been the view that that Christianity itself, that's always been Christianity's view of itself, that our faith is, is truly rational, truly morally good, truly beautiful, and can be perceived as such by rightly ordered persons. What has happened in our time is that this has shifted from being an open-hearted and humble search for understanding and rather become a matter of putting in Lewis classic metaphor putting god in the dock on the on the defensive stand as it were god is now the defendant of the modern accuser whose authority in our lives is contingent upon his willingness to adjust his claims and his ways in the shape of our feelings our our value perceptions If Of course, if God be God, uh, that has got to be insane. (laughs) Yet, it, it is interesting to note how willing, apparently, God is to be put on trial by humans. Not because he owes it or because he couldn't pull the plug on our ruse, but rather, at least in part, because our own prosecution reveals us. The the trial of Jesus, for instance, says everything about uh, Jesus accusers and about the justice system of Rome and our own prosecution of the Lord says much about us as well. Uh, Lewis is actually characteristically good on this. It's funny how often Aslan uh, doesn't speak in the Narnia series when somebody says something to him. Sometimes, for instance, you'll find the kids objecting to something Aslan commands, uh, effectively putting Aslan on trial. And, and sometimes Aslan is just silent. He doesn't respond to their objection. And his, his silence, the, the silence that he gives them, those sort of sort of hangs in the air, it's awkward, uh, and they realize just in the space of the silence that they're kind of the, the unenlightened ones and they should just shut up and do what Aslan says. Uh, and, and there's a similar sort of thing that happens in, in Lewis's Till We Have Faces where where Orwell finally presents her case before the gods. The whole book is this complaint against the gods. And finally, Orwell gets to stand before the gods and her condom, her condemnation actually winds up coming from her simply hearing herself the gods don't even have to say anything. Uh, uh, similarly, while, while it is rather hubistic, hubristic to put God on trial, <laughs> uh, God has apparently shown himself to be capable of handling it. <laughs> Come, let us reason, he says to a rebellious Israel, like a, like a frustrated dad talking to an ordinary son. Oh, you, you want to talk about fair to you? All righty, then let's get out the deck chairs and talk about fair. Turns out I've been, been waiting to have this conversation. So, and, of course, just as, you know, very often the, 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 the sort of preteen putting the dad on trial or something like this, clearly the very putting of God on trial reveres our hu- reveals our hubris uh, as an instinct, as an imaginable possibility. And uh, modern, modern people, especially Americans, have inherited one of our, our greatest national traits, which is a, a rather inflated sense of moral self-confidence. Uh, Even if turned on America itself, as it often is today, there's ironically nothing so American as inflated moral self-confidence. We're we're rather impressed with our capacity to judge, apparently the the only exception to history's long collection of how could they have thought that, you know, those people back then. But what does that tell all of us? What does that tell us about ourselves? We, all of us, you and me, are people of our times with instincts like the people of our times and the hubris of people of our times. And it only takes a small glance for a reasonable soul to admit something like the following. In any investigation of reality, it is likely to be the case that especially persons like ourselves require some correction to their instincts, some growth in the the, the calibration of their moral feelings. That is to say, I should not assume that I'm so in tune with the frequencies of the good that I don't require fundamental moral transformation somewhere in my moral perspective. And in principle, of course, we all see this about other people. You know, the woke say that the conservative need to be transformed and the conservative say that the woke need to be transformed. And I'm guessing Jesus would say that we all need to be transformed because we're we're mostly morally stupid people. And, and seriously, we, we really are. Uh, if you just watch yourself for a full day, just turn the camera inward and watch what actually comes out of your heart and mind and mouth you'll find that you're way more screwed up than you think and that there are some very deep distortions in your heart, just just as there are in my own. And And the humble thing then for a human being, any human being, the humble thing to do is to recognize that I, of all people, I most certainly need moral guidance and in basic ways at points. I am not the one who knows the good with precision. I am the one who needs a word, a discourse, a light, a guidance from outside of me to help me because I am in the dark. Implied in all that I've said so far is not only that our our instincts are relative and limited in vantage point, that's just a matter of being created, but also that implied throughout has been that our instincts are also fallen deeply fallen. And and this means that our instincts are liable to be positively deceptive in some ways. And again, honest persons can see this in themselves. We all know what it means to engage in selective rage, to witness our spontaneously arising emotions manifest in profoundly convenient ways. Persons exactly like ourselves are in desperate need of help, guidance, and grace to correct our very sense of the just. Uh, and if we don't, in fact, see the emotion, the, the things I just said uh, are earlier in ourselves, then there is some question about whether we actually see ourselves. But we can go one step further. The plain truth is that human beings, and we do see this in ourselves sometimes, but the plain truth is that human beings can even perceive the goodness of a thing with their mind and reject it with their will. The demons... For instance, likely know in their mind that God is good, but their will evaluates this to be evil. Demonic consciousness is perhaps portrayed as a state of kind of pure agitation, precisely because there's such a contradiction in their basic mode of life humans are, are more complicated and manage mostly by avoiding this contradicting and papering it over with, with circuitous self-deceptions. That is to say, sort of our, our, our mind that recognizes the good and our wills orientation toward the good humans try to unite those things. Demons perhaps are beyond the capacity to unite those things, but humans can at least approximate sort of, sort of a, a, a solid self-identity. Uh, and yet for all of us, Despite that approximation, sometimes the the veil is lifted. Sometimes we have that moment where we, we perceive our own willfulness in the face of what something in us knows is fundamentally good. And this is a, if we really see it, when you really confront it, it's a very destabilizing experience. I, like you, am morally sick. We're people of unclean lips and stained hearts, and we need to be saved quite literally saved. (laughs) And so where does that leave us? Where are we so far? First, we can simply admit that our instincts are somewhat relative and that we need moral guidance, all of us. You don't need to be persuaded of any big metaphysical picture to come to that conclusion. That is to say, not only are our instincts relative, but are, are, are most certainly somewhat distorted. We can come to that conclusion pretty easily. But second, uh, just as with what I've said in the in the videos on aesthetics, as I, I've noted from the beginning of this series, the path toward the true, the good, and the beautiful doesn't require never it's never never about working around your instincts and feelings, but rather you work through them. Uh, this has always been assumed by the Christian faith that reality is not ultimately disappointing. The, the, the rightly ordered mind where, where mind and will are in sync and reality is perceived by a whole person with precision, that necessarily corresponds to a mind that recognizes and celebrates the goodness of God in all of his ways because you're seeing the truth and celebrating the good. And so it isn't that we merely The point there is, is we don't merely get into a place where we can manage to hold our nose at all the seemingly gross parts of the Bible. That's not what holiness is, being able to kind of white knuckle your way through, uh, you know, sort of all your violated justice instincts. If that's all that is achievable, then there is no union between the revealed word and the image of God that is in man. But we confess that there is such a union between these things and that the heart of reality does not ultimately disappoint but rather exceeds the hope that we have in, in, in sort of the childish part of ourselves. We have to become children to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so we really can't expect that the Christian who's moving humbly before God and pressing more deeply into reality should not ordinarily expect a life of a sort of tighter nose-holding, but a life of growing recognition that God is righteous and that we are not, not merely is an admission but as an understood plausible and basic fact of reality. This is both uh, through through gradually corrected understanding and corrected moral sensibilities at the same time, which is really in in both cases uh, corrected in, 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 in deeper learning to more deeply trust the heart of God. The most mature movement toward understanding the justice of God then bridges these things it does not rest content merely in the the submission of uh, it d- does not rest content merely in the submission of our will to god's revelation though it might start there but it, we also crave the deepest agreement with the father the deepest confidence in his way which is why that increased understanding is also to to grow in faith as as god presents himself reliable to you and while all of that's grounded in a a humble reception of God's goodness toward us in faith, as as I just noted, it also will not refuse a greater attunement of the entire person toward the justice of God. So, so the Christian, what's, what am I saying there? The Christian really just can't rest if there's some felt tension between assenting to God's justice and some feeling about God's justice that's quivering. And for this reason, uh, you know, a person walking in faith toward God who is learning to trust God and does trust God doesn't refuse that greater attunement of, of, of the entire person when the when the mind and the feelings, as it were, come together. And, and for this reason, we do need to be honest when we really do wonder the things that we wonder and have the questions that we have, as, I, as I've noted throughout the series. And I'm not claiming to be to be sure that we necessarily overcome all itches in this life, all intellectual or moral itches, but rather that the Christian life should expect a life of movement, the Christian should expect a life of movement and attempted relief in these areas And we all get this. This is just the the motion of a son learning to be like his father. We start by just doing the thing because he said so. And if our father is wise and we're growing in wisdom and he's shown himself to be wise, we slowly learn to see why he said what he said in the first place, both through understanding and through imitation. But refusing merely to silence these instincts is crucial. A, A lot of rather pathological Christianity does actually come from a refusal to take these itches as in legitimate need of scratching and in those cases what the endurance of a sort of like ooh, that seems weird itch you know about the bible for instance that becomes a measurement of faith the the court sort of more bible justified contrary to common decency you can be the more submitted to god you are and that leads to you know westboro baptist church The more you can talk in wild-eyed ways about the tortures of hell and the screams of the damned, the more you can shout loudly about the lib-triggering parts of holy writ, the more holy and bold for Jesus you are. And and that, of course, isn't an ego-inflated tendency and has nothing to do with Christian maturity. (laughs) The Christian sees the very plain and basic rationality and reasonableness of deference to God over my own instincts. But the Christian also seeks to know God in the fullness of a human life and understanding and to continually move into his reign freely, unhindered, and with gladness. And so we don't, again, all that, we don't resist our moral questions, but move through them with, the, with a spirit that's willing to be, to be taught and led. And so so wrapping up the first part of this video on our moral instincts, it should be clear that we're here confronting something at the very heart of the gospel. At the very heart of the gospel is our agreement with God in his contention against us. God, who is light and in whom there is no darkness whatsoever, has a contention with us as individuals and as a species that we perpetuate ruin, that we misrepresent his name, that we fall short of his glory. Uh, It is one thing merely to say all of this, you know, yeah, yeah, I know I'm a sinner. It's another thing to see it. There there are plenty of people who can wax eloquent about the doctrine of total depravity, but can never admit to their wife that they do anything wrong. (laughs) It's another thing to actually see it, to see the nascent and cryptic evidences that you you yourself are an abyss, a, a disintegrated algorithm of of circuitry and selfishness and instrumentalization and, 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 and pure will. And it isn't that you don't see evidences for this in yourself. It's, it's rather that you're so used to your own sickness that you take it for granted. You know, we all say things like everybody does that. We justify ourselves in that way. But again, we we all have moments where things are clear. There is, a, there is a rational part of the soul that can come to see both the tragedy of our own active pers- participation in, in cosmic vandalization and treason, and that cannot but recognize that we are in the pro- that we are the proper and fitting res- recipients of a real judgment. None of which is to suggest that we even see the full problem. God alone sees the full extent of our decay, uh, agreement with God in his contention against us then is also to walk, again, go, keep coming back, to, it, to walk by faith that God's evaluation is liable to be more precise than our own, even about ourselves. Uh, to, to, so then to come to grips with God's contention against us is not just to see it, but to, but to listen to the ones who, whose word is, is worthy of being trusted. So all right, that's the the first half of this video. We've tried to take honest stock of ourselves and the limitation of our instincts. And having done that, we're perhaps in a place to to not answer all the questions about hell and death and judgment, but rather to identify what a good answer must take into account. So let's just take the idea of divine anger or divine punishment for sin as a case study. When persons like ourselves are are presented with, with stories of divine anger or punishment, what should we keep in mind? I think there there are several apparent and and rational things to say here. Just a little more water here. First, we cannot understand divine judgment unless we understand the purity of God. Ancient people were were more in tune with this than we are. If If you read Leviticus with humility and asks, what does it say about God? You can focus on the sacrifice in themselves and all the purity codes and such, but these all illuminate something about God himself. God is pure. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And this is actually good news. That's, that's, that's what, what, what what is behind creation. He's life himself. In his presence is fullness of joy, pure ecstatic livingness, pure actuality in philosophical language. Uh, This is something that has to be to be meditated upon. Imagine really and, and truly being next to a person who was perfectly, perfectly holy. Would you not, like Isaiah, instinctively feel your own your own worthiness of judgment? Would you not become your own judge in that moment? You know, with Peter, you know, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. It would be uncomfortable to be next to such purity. Uh, All is clear in his light, and in that light, all men will ultimately come to agreement, whether freely or begrudgingly, with God's own judgment, confessing that Jesus is Lord and that his judgments are true. And viewed in this light, what is especially prominent in the Bible is not the problem of divine judgment. That makes sense. He's pure, we're not. But the problem of divine promise uh, th- th- that's how Romans 3, in fact, frames it, uh, or 321 to 26, where God's forgiveness is actually the problem of divine justice at stake there. How could a God this pure be so patient with the human race? Why did the flood preserve some fellows instead of not wiping them all out? How after the fall did this very holy God, the supremely pure one, possibly dwell with people whose hearts were like our own, like your own? And the answer to this, paradoxically, is also (laughs) that God is perfectly pure. The anger of God is not like the uncontrolling rage of man, but is rather precisely a statement about his love for his creation, and so the the Bible is not a story of a god not being able to control some burning rage inside of him but rather precisely of his perfect self-possession in the face of provocation but nevertheless real provocation. God is not not apathetic but angry when his image is defaced when the when the music of the cosmos is distorted by willing in, in, in inexcusable self-sabotage, but pure as he is, free from our own rage, God, who made the world out of pure love, resolves his own necessary and absolutely fitting anger not through the consumption of the cosmos, but rather by stepping into the cosmos and absorbing his, only, h- absorbing his own fitting, his utterly fitting curse. So that then he, what he does then is, his, instead of you know, being out of control of this burning rage, he rather transforms the attempted ruination of the world into a creation that is more excellent than would have otherwise existed. So, so God is pure from the stain of our unjust anger. His love is perfect, unfree from unfree from from sin, and there and therefore, in fact, <laughs> precisely because his anger uh, uh, is is unfree is free from sin, it's pure. It's also powerful to save. Uh, uh, it, it's God's very anger against the darkness, against the sin, against death that, in part, drives him to get it out of the cosmos because he loves the cosmos. He made it. He wants it to flourish, and that's why he saves us, or that's a good bit of why he saves us. So what's the point here? Before we have the, the the unnatural mock trial of God, which he himself invites when done with humility, we must begin with confessing the more obvious truth that we are on trial with God and that we deserve to be. Moreover, we, of all Christians in history, like live fairly, uh, we, we, we of all Christians in history, live fairly domesticated lives, often shielded from, from harsher dimensions of reality like death and sickness. Uh, read off the text of most ordinary human experience. The tragedy of existence was so thick that it was not difficult to imagine the reality of divine judgment. In our, and that's still true in a lot of the third world. They don't struggle with the doctrine of divine judgment in hell in the same way that we do. In our age, where where love, however, is primarily therapeutic and where we studiously avoid the tragic dimension of any real human existence, the doctrines of hell and of judgment seem merely brutal rather than written into the fabric of reality in some way. And yet the, the, the tragic brutalities are not gone from the world because we don't pay attention to them. It's rather we who've just left them. And the theologies that that have teeth to give, the the, the theologies that have the teeth to give a a real account of them, a plausible account of them. There's a a whole discussion in contemporary scholarship, in fact, about when uh, hell and divine judgment actually became a problem in the modern period and why it became a problem against modern moral sentiments. Uh, I mean, in fact, we, we tend towards sentimentalizing both reality and God for very concrete historical reasons. And it's important to feel that self-relativization when we come to a question like this. But we must be cautious, and this gets us to our second point of our second point, 2.2, I guess. Our context is not just a liability though. Uh, we, we have our own vantage points as well. Our, our ancestors have gifts to offer us but we likewise have gifts to offer the tradition. And so we should not dismiss the fact that we have the questions that we do. We simply do have them. And it is only by boldly tackling them with with the wisdom that we've received that we ourselves will grow in wisdom and offer that wisdom to the next generation. And so these are our questions. And so maybe that's, you know, God is calling us to, to become more precise about these things. And so we should try. And so what are those questions? They're things like this. Dear Lord... Why don't you save everyone even if you know, even if you, you know, even if we know you could? Why don't you save everyone even if we know you could? How could preserving human freedom be worth tolerating the damnation of other persons? Why do you not stop much of the senseless carnage that goes on all around us? How, dear Lord, should I respond to this passage that seems to imply that you commanded the slaughter of infants? These are all good questions, and I hope in future videos to to tackle each of them specifically. And I think there are extremely helpful things to say about each of them, actually. Most persons, admitted or not though, can feel their weight. We do want good answers to those questions. For now, and, and finally under 2.2 again, I'll just say a few things about how we can work through these questions in principle. Uh, the first thing to say there is we should just be proportionate. We never do see a judgment in scripture that is not really backgrounded by mercy. God punishes to the third and fourth generation, he says, but his mercy is to the thousandth generation. So, for instance, it's significant that the Bible does not say that God is anger, but it does say that he's love. However, those threads are interwoven as the, as the person of Christ reveals. The, the face of God is a face of love and mercy and forbearance and patience. Uh, we must confess, however, as we see with Christ. Christ gets angry. Uh, even the scarier aspects of divine judgment, uh, when we see those, we're not seeing something ultimately that a rational mind could unwish, either when we see God's anger in the Old Testament or Jesus' anger in the New Testament. We shouldn't, that, that's not something a rational mind could ultimately unwish. That is to say, if we could see with God's vision and have his perfect heart, we'd both grasp uh, his anger, we'd get it, uh, but we'd also get that we'd likely be much less patient than god if we were you know in his position contrary to possibility uh you know in all those bickering disciple passages you aren't patient jesus you're the bickering disciples <laughs> and if you ran the the universe chances are you'd be less patient than god not more uh, but god is fully and perfectly love and precisely in, in his judgments and in the effects of the fall that he allows to escape the preventative medicine of his common grace, he remains perfectly and fully loved and good in what he allows and in his judgments. The Christian heart then uh, ultimately moves toward resting in the, in the precision of God's provident care. That's a very, very big part of growing in faith. But, but moving on, we should not assume that we know precisely what all of the re- realities under, under consideration entail. Uh, and here we get back to the crucial question of meaning raised at the beginning of the video. What does it even mean that God judges? How does hell work? What does the Bible actually say? Is it just a, a sort of an eternal torture chamber? And as I said, I hope to work through these questions later, but for now, it is worth saying that there are many thoughtful treatments of these questions out there that also that many people are unaware of. Even in the apologetics literature, most of the the popular treatments are rooted in a lot of it, at least kind of folk belief, rather than the engagement of biblical scholarship. Uh, A good exception to this uh, is Joshua Butler's The Skeletons in God's Closet, Uh, which I think very much helps to dispel most myths surrounding these things and puts the biblical teaching in larger redemptive historical perspective. Uh, Similarly, there are some very helpful treatments of, say, for instance, Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac and the logic of holy war and the holy land. Each of these are redemptive historically peculiar moments, and this really can be shown and argued by good exegesis. And the church has, in fact, often treated these, these passages Uh, as sort of idiosyncratic moments in the history of God's people, having everything to do with the immediate pedagogy of God's people at the time. And it it can be shown that this is no cop-out from the exegetical tradition, a, a sort of mere update to contemporary sensibilities. And what's the point there? The point is that before you go wager the farm on your understanding of these doctrines, make sure that you actually understand what's really being claimed and how Christians in the whole Christian tradition have handled these texts and these passages. Uh, So what what do the scriptures actually teach? And what is the range of faithful Christian Orthodox interpretation on these questions? One final thing I'll say. I think it would help reorient much of this discussion if we saw that we tend to frame these matters individualistically, rather than cosmically. In writing the story of creation, for instance, God's not merely writing your story. Rather, he's writing something centered in his son, precisely out of love for creatures like you who can enjoy what he is doing and how he conscripts you into, into this tale with this hero over here. That is to say, if the if the universe were about you, that would be disappointing and worse for you because you were made to hitch your wagon to something grander than you. That's precisely what being a human being is, is the kind of creature that's open to that granderness, as it were. And and, and your story then gets bigger as you look, you know, look out from it toward others rather than navel gazing within it. And that fusion of stories then, that kind of fusion of stories, is the very grammar of creation uh, as, as well as its beauty. We don't come into the, to the world, for instance, as isolated stories, but rather as living by a script that we largely share with others. And yet the very logic of the thing, the very project, is thickly communal in nature. What does this mean? This, this means that the fall also is communal and that redemption is communal if creation is communal in in this sort of way then that's gonna that's gonna that's gonna affect what the fall looks like and then what redemption looks like And and so part of the answer to the problem of senseless suffering is that our race is fallen measured largely by the degree to which we harm one another in 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 some minimally you know external way we as a species fall and rise together And for this reason, our participation in God's redemption is partially measured by how much we love our fellows and invest ourselves in their good. This is the mark of a life receiving God's grace. Uh, And again, the the very beatitude of our individual selfhood is found not in looking at our own individual selfhood, uh, 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 but precisely in seeing the whole, giving our whole self and our story to the story of the community, ultimately the, the story of Christ doing this is is precisely, in fact, how we as individuals stand the tallest and become the grandest that we can be. So so what does that all have to do with the problem in front of us? (laughs) Let's tie that together in case it got lost in there. When we look at senseless suffering, something like senseless suffering, we're often asking how God could let this individual suffer. But we fail to see that the whole race is under a curse because we are the kind of thing, we are the species that perpetuates ruin. No one suffers who is not also part of a tyrannical species in some way. We live under a curse that the rational mind confesses to be a good curse, good, good of, of God's judgment. It was a good judgment, as it were, because God is good. Because the ruin in us must, it's a good judgment because the ruin in us must, if we are to truly become ourselves, be expunged. For we were meant to dwell with God. Anything else is violence to our nature, and this means that we must remove the stain that obscures the Father, a stain that is both individual and communal as well. It must be removed for the sake of our individual and communal beatitude. Similarly, when we think of death and hell, if we think from the perspective of the individual, like like Judas, for instance, it's of course would be better if the whole universe never existed. But it is precisely a good of the cosmos that the individual is not the measure of the cosmos' worth. Rather, something greater than an individual is here. And it is it is the story of Christ, the, the script to which we're all freely invited to hitch our wagon, the story of the individual whose pattern we receive in ourselves. Those who do so, who those who are united to Christ will have their name preserved. They will have eternal life in communion with a body those who reject this communion and who seek eternal life in the cave of themselves will only find disintegration and finally unfittingness for participation in the cosmos. And that's a good thing about the cosmos because we were made for that thing, not this, not this substitute. And you might ask, you know, isn't that callous? And, and, and the answer has to be no All of us realize that there is such a thing as being responsible for earning rightful removal from the project. You know, at Alcoholics Anonymous, for instance, you can show up drunk as long as you're in the game in some way. If you had 10 beers before you got there, at least you're there now. But if you bring booze to the meeting and you start handing it out, you're out of the meeting. Similarly in the church you can be a sinner we're all sinners at church come come slither in as i remember one somebody saying somebody saying a while ago we're all sinners at church but you can't walk around boasting about your sin and spreading it the, the the cosmic version of this then is is that you cannot refuse the aid of god to heal your disease and still get included in the world's final restoration you must remain out of that restoration, not because God does not love you, but precisely because he does love you and the kind of thing that you are, that he loves a human who is made for him, and he refuses you any destiny besides that, or that just is destruction. You were made to participate in something outside of yourself. That is when you stand the tallest, and God refuses you any destiny but this. And if we refuse it, we can't blame God. And we cannot pretend that he should organize the whole show differently because we refuse him. That is to ask God to make the whole universe subservient to the private hell that we have chosen, something we would recognize as a private hell if we could see what we were actually made for. He refuses such terms precisely because not in spite of the fact that he is love. God is zealous to preserve his world from the stain of death, a stain that he can provisionally permit, but not ultimately tolerate. And his goodness and the goodness of his judgment lies in both of those directions, in the direction of of permitting proximately death and sin, but finally not tolerating death and sin. Both are necessary of God uh, uh, if God really is light, life, and love. Maybe this primes the pub for us. A, a final caution is in order, however. There's a, there's a tragic dimension to, to, to real human life. We live on this side of the veil of tears and we, and we know in a vapor. We will not experience all suffering and evil in our lives as so obviously integratable into anything, at least in any neat way. Rather, the, the process of enduring our own pains and our own wounds takes a lifetime. God does indeed comfort us and bring good out of what was meant for evil, but evil itself remains evil, fundamentally experienced as tragedy in some ways. It remains a cause of sadness. There is a a darkness in our world, and it is precisely this, in fact, that makes God a God of salvation, for he doesn't save us from what in itself is sort of a covert good, but from something we rightly think of as an enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil, We do not have the final word over our suffering, but rather he does, and that is finally our salvation, not not finishing it all now or having all the answers now, but waiting upon his definitive word and judgment and his coming. What I want to do in the future is come back and talk through some of these things more specifically. I'd like to to work through the questions of hell and the kind of the scary Old Testament passages. But before that, we need to finish up these lectures on the God question. So we've worked through the, the first two layers at this point and are now in a place to work through the third layer, the objections to God that arise from rational argumentation. Having cleared the way, as it were, in these first two layers, we're now in a place to perhaps Uh, 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 calm, more calmly use our rational faculties. So I look forward then to, to picking up this conversation with you next time. Farewell.